Don't miss ACEC's next private market symposium on the commercial and residential real estate market taking place in Scottsdale, Arizona on March 3rd and 4th. Register today to meet leaders in business, land development, engineering, and construction to network and discuss the hot-button issues surrounding this growing market. What does the post-COVID office market look like? How will growth in the industrial distribution market meet the growing demand for e-commerce? How will demographics shape suburban growth? These questions and more will be covered at the event. Act now, space is limited. Go to acec.org to register. Welcome to the Engineering Influence Podcast presented by the American Council of Engineering Companies. ACEC has just published a new book, Climate Change and the Built Environment. Obviously, that's a big and complex issue to tackle. And to accomplish that, the book is a collaborative effort with the chapters and case studies written by 19 experts from a variety of professional backgrounds and geographical regions around the country. The task of capturing all that expertise and insight into the book fell to two co-editors, Lisa Churchill, who is the founder of Climate Advisory in Portland, Maine, and Patricia Gary, who is of counsel at the law firm Donovan Hatem in Boston. Churchill, who has been active in the A&E field for more than 25 years and more recently has focused on issues regarding climate change, has joined us on the program to talk about the book and the issues. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Jerry. Great to be here. So as a co-editor, what, what, what do you hope to achieve with this book? For me, a, a big goal of the book was about bringing awareness to all that's been happening in this space and then turning that awareness into motivation um, to move our focus from just talking about what might happen to what we can actually do about it and, and do about it now. So from my perspective, I hope this book achieves three things. One, that it gives hope. Um, it gives hope based on all that's been done and all that can be done to prepare for climate change. Um, secondly, that it instills a sense of urgency and a sense of relevancy within the larger design profession. And then finally, that it serves as a readily accessible guide to anyone, and I really mean anyone who's interested in being part of that solution. So I, I guess that would be this. So the book is, while it's targeted toward engineers, it, you, you see it perhaps reaching a, a wider audience. Yeah, I think we're really careful in the title in terms of design professionals, because we realize that in the design field, it really is a multidisciplinary effort and definitely going to need to be even more so under climate change. So it's not just design engineers, but it also includes planners, um, scientists. We have several folks from the legal field who, um, you know, including my co-editor. Um, as part of this book, planning, um, architectural background, and I think um, the natural environment can't be understated either. So this really is for anybody who works within the design field, regardless of what their particular training might be. So, so in addition to being a co-editor, you wrote a chapter um, titled appropriately, Climate Change and its Revelant Relevance to the Design Professional. And um, I, in it, you wrote, and I'm gonna quote here, uh, uh, sentence. The challenge becomes how to accommodate changes within a world where permanence, individualized property rights, and a resource-intensive way of life have become the hallmarks of modern society. So, a close quote. How, how do you see the design professionals facing that challenge? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, 
I believe a lot of this has as much to do with behavioral sciences as it actually has to do with technical solutions. So it really gets to the core of what has value, um, how that value is defined, who defines it, uh, how it will need to change to align with climate change pressures, and how that new value gets measured and incentivized. So as design professionals, um, we'd look to work with those entities and partners who share both the sense of urgency and a deep commitment to doing things differently. Um, people who have long-term focus, for whom social equity and inclusiveness are fundamental to resilient future, and who can clearly see how that thinking benefits both the people they serve as well as their own business model. Um, and by working with these partners, we, and when I say we, I mean our industry as a collective whole, we develop a lexicon of solutions that can be shared with others who might not wanna be the first out of the gates per se, but who might be brave enough if they have a case study to work from. And eventually those innovations become standard practice and people become comfortable doing things differently for the greater good. And, and that's really what this book is all about. It's about sharing representative pieces of all that's been done to date to make that information more accessible, to make it less mysterious, and to really encourage greater adoption of these types of approaches across all different industries. The book is really about professionals in the design space looking to support their colleagues with respect to the challenges of climate change. So, so the book includes some uh, some case studies, and you mentioned you know case studies that show successful efforts. Could could you you know in a brief synopsis, like just give a sense of of a of a, of a case study where that 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 that's highlighted in the book? Yeah, we had um, we are really trying to um, make sure that we had good national coverage on those. Um, and so we have a particular case study um, that you'll see in the state of Colorado that dealt with flooding. Um, we have another one in um, Boston, Massachusetts, um, likewise thinking about sea level rise and coastal flooding, whereas Colorado obviously was more inland um, flooding. Um, we have people looking at different case studies depending on who the, the end client is, right, or the end user. So is it um, a public arena? Is it um, a high consequence um, a uh, high consequence of failure type of um, facility? Is it um, a larger, you know, watershed level aspect? Um, we had a, another case study that came from um, Wisconsin that talks about um, massive flooding associated with that area and what that meant in terms of long-term implications for tourism and recreational values. So I think there's a really good continuum of not only different types of events, um, but also the impacts of different types of infrastructure. And again, um, trying to capture uh, a geographic rep representation of those um, various intersects and, and sort of what the solutions might be based on those, which are in many ways translatable to, to other both events and um, geographies. One of the one of the things I, I in reading your chapter that I that struck me was a, a, was a term you used called the tragedy of the horizons. I, I I found it very enlightening. Could you could you sort of give the the listeners a sense of what that is? The tragedy tragedy of the horizons. Sure. Um, so Mark Carney, um, governor of the Bank of England, coined that term in 2015. And the tragedy of horizons was a phrase that he used to draw attention to the mismatch between shorter time horizons. Um, so those that would be used, let's say, by the financial sector or um, political cycles, um, the mismatch between those shorter time horizons and the longer term implications of climate change. 
Um, so this concept has direct implications to the built environment, right? So buildings and infrastructure easily have a minimal lifespan of at least 30 years. And anyone who's worked in the A&E industry knows that a 75 to 100 year old asset is not uncommon. And that is really an important consideration for people to recognize that whenever uh, or whatever they are planning for, designing, constructing, installing today, that needs to be configured in a way that will accommodate climate change over the next 30 years. So as an example, in some places, the 10 year storm in 2050 might become the 25 year storm for today. So said another way, there's gonna be a lot more precipitation coming down at more regular intervals in many places by 2050. If those considerations aren't taken into account during the planning and design phase, then an asset that would normally have a life expectancy, let's say of around 30 years, might only last for 20 years or less because it's not built to perform in those new conditions. Um, and another place where we see the tragedy of horizons coming into play is around how we talk about risk, especially with respect to traditional underwriting practices in the insurance industry. So traditional practices, sorry, traditional practices um, have relied on assessing risk at a particular site on a year-by-year -year basis and then resetting it each year. For example, when we speak about a one in a hundred year or a 1% chance of flooding event, that is the chance that a particular asset will be flooded for that particular year. It doesn't reflect the chance of flooding occurring during the life expectancy of the asset itself. So if we were to look at the risk in a much more realistic way, and think of it in terms of the cumulative risk of flooding across the life expectancy of that asset, we'd find that that 1% annual chance of flooding, that actually increases to 26% chance of flooding over a 30 year time span and a 39% chance of flooding after 50 years. So you can well imagine that an asset owner or even a homeowner for that matter, might have a very different view of the actual risk to their holding if it were messaged in a way that spoke to their long-term interest rather than the shorter-term interest of the companies providing that coverage. So to close out, um, the way that risk is currently calculated and messaged by the financial insurance sectors really understates the actual risk to an asset during its lifespan. And because of that, then it also fails to capture the actual value of resilience. And that's where the tragedy of the horizons concept really applies to both infrastructure and climate change. It's interesting you mentioned insurance because they're frequently hailed as being on the cutting edge of, of responding to climate change. But as you say, they are still uh, trapped in their short-term uh, focus. Yeah, and I think that um, that's a place that's definitely getting increased attention across the board. Um, there's this assumption that the insurance coverage that exists today will always exist, and that the initial terms will remain largely unchanged over the length of that engagement or ownership. Um, however, as we know, um, traditional insurance policies are up for renewal every year. Um, there have been some instances when insurance like products, um, let's say like cat bonds, they may extend for as long as five years, um, but these really aren't that common. And even a five-year period is pretty minimal compared to a 30 or 50-year life expectancy for buildings and infrastructure. Um, the other relevant facts here are that climate change impacts are becoming more intense, becoming more frequent and more costly. 
And that's been happening steadily now um, over the last several years. And so in the insurance, um, in the insurance industry, what was once a discounted externality, meaning climate risk, is now becoming a very material risk. And insurers are already adjusting their practices to reflect this. Um, I've referenced a few examples of this in the book and my chapter, and I know my co-authors have others as well. Um, in my particular chapter, um, some examples of this, I, I highlight FM, FM Global's call to the CFOs to start assessing climate risk within their portfolio. Um, uh, draw attention to the QBE insurance group that's requiring that climate change now be considered a material risk in their pricing of premiums. And then um, the farmer's insurance challenge to the city of Chicago um, about who owned the recovery cost for a particular flooding event, given that the city had already identified that as a possible outcome in their climate change vulnerability plan, but hadn't addressed it. So again, insurance, like all other industries, is having to adjust its business model to account for climate change. And I think the take home message here is that what has been insurable in the past might not be so moving forward. Um, in, in, in your chapter, I, uh, I, there was a paragraph about, um, about the true value of resilience, which, which really struck me, I, I, not, not being um, deeply versed in the subject, you know, I had a basic idea of what resilience was and what, or what it can be and, and what its value is. But you, uh, I, I thought you caught it brilliantly, and I just want to read this. It's, it's an entire paragraph, but I just want to read it um, and then have you comment. Um, you write, the true value of, of resilience is not captured in single short-lived events, but rather through the cumulative impact of those losses, including things like shortened life expectancies of infrastructure, growing Department of Public Work budgets for repair and additional maintenance, the possibility of losing insurance or of insurance becoming too costly, the potential for federal and state funding for disasters to disappear, out-migration of taxpayers, residents and businesses who move to less vulnerable areas to live, an increase in energy costs associated with cooling needs, the construction of large-scale mega projects such as seawalls to allow residents and businesses to remain in place versus moving away, financial disclosure requirements leading to divestment or devaluation, etc. It's really a comprehensive list. It seems to me that, that whether as an industry or as a species perhaps, we are, uh, we're, we're failing to communicate the true value of resilience. Yeah, yeah, um, it, and it's true. And, and the reasons for it are really this tangled web of both um, unintended and intended consequences, um, especially if you start to unpack what it is um, currently perceived, what is currently perceived to have value and who makes that determination. Um, but for today's discussions, um, I, I guess I'll focus, I'll keep a little more high level and, and focus on five common causes um, for that devaluation. The first one we just spoke about um, a few minutes ago, and that's the tragedy of the horizons piece, um, where people are really focused on the, on the short-term results, which in no way reflect the realities of the built environment or communities um, for that matter. Um, the second piece is the fact that a lot more attention is often paid to the upfront capital cost of projects and much less um, to the longer-term maintenance and operational cost which is um, really completely misplaced since over the lifetime of an asset or a system, 
And maintenance and operational costs often far exceed that upfront capital cost. Um, and again, a lot of this gets back to sort of the short-term accounting issues uh, associated with the tragedy of the horizons. Um, people are very focused on the short-term, less so on longer-term implications. Um, the third reason that we have this devaluation is that we're not very good at tracking avoided cost. So for example, what are the savings from not having to replace a bridge in 10 years versus 50 years because climate change um, has been considered in that design or not? And who has a vested interest in those avoided costs? Um, who, who benefits from those avoided costs? And who has to pay if the asset fails? And if no one's really figured out those pieces, then it's unlikely that there's a vested interest in actually calculating or tracking those avoided costs. Um, the fourth reason is um, gets to the ability to track cumulative impacts. Again, something that we're not really, haven't done a good job at so far. So when we look at impacts following a natural disaster, those are often tied directly to the physical damage itself. Um, there might be some economic projections that are reported in there as well, but that too is almost always based on what happened within the year or two after the event. What we're not good at is tracking how the direct physical impacts of one event necessarily spill into other events or other years. So a recent example of that is the failure of the Pacific Coast Highway in California in 2021. So that occurred because of the erosion of a burn scar that was created by a wildfire in the previous years. But it's quite likely that those two events are counted separately even though they share a common cause. And so again, how do we change those accounting practices? And then finally, um, the fifth reason is that really no one's been assigned. No one's been assigned the task to centralize and standardize this type of data or analyses. Um, there are glimmers of progress. Um, we see that with the uh, disclosure initiatives associated with the task force and climate-related financial disclosure, TCFD. Um, the pending SEC climate um, disclosure requirements, and um, entities such as the ASTM looking to standardize how climate risk is assessed and then used to inform business decisions. But, but none of those on their own will really be able to capture the value of resilience as we're laying out here. And that's really something that's gonna require a major shift and will likely only come about as a result of joint market and government actions. Um, and at the end of the day, um, you know, climate change costs a lot of money. And in many ways, that's a ray of hope, if you will, because that alone will create a tremendous incentive to start to do things differently. And I think that we will start to be able to suss out that true um, cost of not being resilient not being resilient in a way that we can start to incorporate resilience practices into the work we do both short term and long term. Yeah, that, I mean, it's. I, I think your 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 five points they all seem to be uh, both separate but also very intertwined with each other. Basically, a an in a, an inability uh, to, uh, I guess it is based to find find someone responsible enough to who has the responsibility to to uh, address the issue on a broader scale than their own uh, limited interest. I think. Right, and I think the authority to require as much, authority, too, right? right. Um, and I, I do think that it will be a shared public 
and private uh, venture, which, which it should be. And I do see that there's, there have been a lot of shifts on both those fronts. I think that in both the public sector and the private sector, we're still struggling with short-term horizons in the public sector that might be a little more apparent in terms of political cycles um, on the private side, more on the financial assessment and underwriting practices. I think that um, being able to think long-term is really going to be key the same way that it was for sustainability in terms of being able to capture that value of resilience um, in a way that makes um, people do things differently financially and economically. Um, to, to, to bring the focus down a little uh, uh, more on our industry, the, the design uh, industry, um, one, one, you, you mentioned one potential impact for anyone involved in, in uh, infrastructure design and construction is the potential for the recalibration of force majeure. You write in, in your chapter, the ability to use force majeure triggers to cover projected climate impacts is starting to be questioned as it becomes more difficult to assert that these types of events are unpredictable. Is that something that engine, engine design professionals are going to need to pay attention to? Yeah, and I think that was some of the um, information we talked about a little bit earlier on the insurance front. I think as um, anyone in the design profession, um, we have a professional responsibility to advise our partners and clients on potential risk, thinking again long term on the projects that we're involved with often have these 30, 50 years plus um, longevity to them. And a big part of that is understanding uh, performance expectations throughout that, and then what the possible um, contingencies are in place for potential failures. Um, you know, insurance is often used um, for both services and physical impacts and business interruption aspects. Um, I think it's important that we understand that these products are often issued on a year by year basis. They can be reset. Um, there isn't this um, there isn't this promise of the the terms and conditions being the same as they were on the first day that it was taken out for several years later, or that that insurance will even be available. Um, in some ways, that creates a motivation for um, owners and operators of assets and systems to um, think more about resilience, to be more resilient, so you don't necessarily have to rely and outside sources of funding or um, support in the case of some of these both major events or longer term um, stressors. So I think it's very much um, in our wheelhouse to understand how risk is currently um, underwritten and how that might change and how we can work with our clients and partners to come up with a more resilient solution. So some of those underwritings aren't even necessary moving forward. Are you seeing that in your uh, work within the industry? Are you seeing that engineers or design professionals are sort of switching or sort of uh, transitioning from their fo focus perhaps on the risks rather focusing now on resilience itself? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think one of the big differences between um, resilience and risk, at least in my mind, if, if we start with a good working definition of resilience, it's really the um, ability to maintain um, critical functionality in the midst of both short-term shocks or longer-term stressors. Um, so that requires us to analyze how and why the asset exists, you know, who it serves, and what the consequences of its failure might be. 
Um, we need to understand what the minimal acceptable performance expectations look like, and then use those as a benchmark against different types of risk, shocks, and stressors. You know, risk assessments, traditional risk assessments, um, often approach the situation from the perspective of the hazard first. Um, in the end, the risk and resilience assessments may look similar in terms of their conclusions, but I think there's often a greater richness of detail when one thinks first about the purpose of the asset, who it serves, and why, and then conducts the hazard-specific stress test. Um, I think in terms of the, again, the long-term um, vantage point, I think as people working in the built environment, we already have that um, built in. So I think that's easy for us to make that transition. Um, I think that the more difficult piece is the uncertainty that climate change introduces in terms of having to project what those new conditions might look like in the next 20 or 30 years. And um, in an industry where up until this point, um, very recently that we've relied heavily on historic data, and we know that that is no longer um, a good predictor of current, let alone future events in terms of um, weather and climate, it's introduced this um, nuance into the system that forces us to have a deep understanding of resilience, to understand what the overall risk tolerance is for a particular um, asset system that we're looking at, and then to design in a way that has contingencies in place that either, um, you know, one of the options is to focus more on recovery. So to potentially, like if we're talking about a flood, to potentially let that asset flood and then fo focus on recovery after, or if we're thinking of a cannot fail type of um, institution, so say like a hospital, the focus of that design might be more on making sure that that stays accessible throughout the event and that you allow for some sheltering in place. Um, so I do think that as design professionals, we have a good understanding of thinking long-term. I think there's still, um, um, we're still learning to be comfortable with uncertainty, but I think that we've been really um, privileged to have a great number of partners in the space that have allowed us to, in many cases, to design beyond code, if you will, and to think long-term about climate uncertainty and how that will affect um, how we design and plan today. And again, that book is a, a great testament um, to all those different um, projects that are out there and, and just capturing a small amount of work that's already been done in this area. So I, um, it's, it's really great to be part of um, this evolution and I, I see nothing but good moving forward on that front. Yeah, you, I mean, as, as you just did there, and also within your book, it's within the, your chapter itself. You 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 end on a on a decidedly optimistic note, um, which which is refreshing in the <laughs> for when you when you read the news. Um, but uh, and you see opportunities for the engineering industry. And here's another quote: "To build something today that will shape a better world for this generation." And the following ones. So so you, despite everything we read, you 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 are optimistic. So um, am I optimistic? Um, I think I think I'd answer it like this. Um, some days, some days I'm optimistic, um, but every day, every day I'm hopeful. Okay, yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> Hope is good. As as uh, you're in Maine and the the Shawshank Redemption, I, I think he says hope may be the best thing. So, um, well, thanks so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure.
And then thanks for listening to the Engineering Influence Podcast presented by the American Council of Engineering Companies.